Meditation. 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 Depending on the quality of my You know, there's good days and bad days. I mean, feel like the waterfall of thoughts. Every now and then, a nice, calm, I can't think of anything. This is Meditation in the City. The Shambhala New York Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Meditation in the City podcast. My name is Francesca, and I'm your host. The title of this episode is Intimate with One Another, A Buddhist View of Love. This talk was recorded in 2020. Today we are joined by Bill Auerbach. Bill is a longtime practitioner of Shambhala Buddhism. He's also a psychologist and a psychoanalyst. He's on the teaching faculty of New York University and the Contemplative Studies Project of New York. Here's Bill to take away the discussion. This is a topic I've looked forward to teaching at, at Shambhala. It's been one of my main practices over the last, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 years. Um, and uh, it's something that I think, um, it's a, a meditation practice that I think also works because it's basically very much about what we are as human beings, that we are profoundly, profoundly as human beings related one to another. And anything that will actually alleviate suffering really has to appreciate the depth and the power of that interrelatedness. And for me, these teachings uh, really get at that, and particularly the, the meditative practice, some of which I'll share with you today, as sort of an, we could say, uh, introduction to it, or one experience of it. I find over the weeks and months and years goes deeper and deeper as many variations, many shades. Uh, and, uh, and each one has a quality of sort of opening the heart, calming oneself. And I think if it's working, we become, I become less selfish, less aggressive, less irritating, less annoying. Uh, and the, my sense of love seems to grow wider and wider bit by bit, little by little as I do it. Uh, and if I'm not really doing it right, you could say, in the sense of it's not really working for me, that doesn't happen. But I think as long as my heart's in it and I practice it, it seems to be like a, a road that just slowly opens up over time. So I'm happy to share some of that with you today. So I thought we could begin first with a little bit of shamatha and the breath because being able to gather the mind, to settle the mind, is always the beginning of any real meditative practice. And without that, we're, our minds or thoughts are a bit like a bunch of mosquitoes in a circle going all about, or dull, or just not, there's not too much is happening that's productive. So uh, if you can just sit comfortably with your eyes opened or closed, and settle your attention into your body and onto your breath. This is the normal natural breath, wherever you feel it most distinctly, whether it's at the tip of your nose or in your chest or in your belly. And the operative word here is we're resting our attention. Rest. 
You may sense the breath is in the nostril, the chest, or the abdomen, wherever it is, just rest there and let the breath be natural. Let the breath come to you. Let it arrive in your awareness. You don't have to go out to the breath and sort of find it. It really comes to you. If you like, you can use a quiet mental notation like in for the in-breath and out for the out-breath, in and out. But very quietly, your attention is going to feel that is about feeling the breath. And it's just one breath. We can give our attention to one breath from beginning to end at a time. If images, sounds, or sensations, or emotions arise, and they're not very strong, just let them flow by. It's just one breath. If something comes up and it's very strong, an emotion, a sensation, a set of thoughts, spend a few moments and just say, oh, this is what is happening now. Just recognizing without being consumed or pushing away. Oh, this is what's happening now. And then see if you can come back to the feeling of the breath. For all those times you are way gone, lost in thought, or sleepy, don't worry. The power of the practice is really in returning, coming back no matter how many times you need to do it. Now let's do some loving kindness practice together. Instead of attending to the breath, we're gently going to repeat a phrase over and over and over again. The spirit of the phrase of how we say it is that we're offering, gift giving giving to others, to our, uh, ourselves, and ultimately to all beings everywhere. Begin, beginning with ourselves, you know, please repeat to yourself, may I be safe, be happy, be healthy, live with ease. May I be safe, be happy, be healthy, live with ease. May I be safe, be happy, be healthy, live with ease. If you find your attention wandering, it's okay, just like 
before simply come back and repeat the phrase over and over again with enough space, with enough silence between the words so it is a rhythm that is pleasing to you. May I be safe, be happy, be healthy, live with ease. No need to force any feeling. The power of the practice is simply in doing it and letting the thoughts and feelings elapse and occur of their own. May I be safe, be happy, be healthy, live with ease. Now we can do it for a benefactor, a person who's inspired us or helped us who's guided us when we've needed it. Maybe it's just a person who spontaneously a smile comes on our face when we think of her or him or it. Maybe it is an adult or a child or a pet or a wild animal. What is the person's name? Is there a feeling or image that goes with that person or animal? Is there a feeling that you have for them? May you be safe, be healthy, be happy, live with ease, wishing that person all those things. May you be safe, be happy, be healthy, live with ease. Now we're going to wish the same thing for a gathering of people who you're connected to and care about. It could be friends, family. They can be doing well and doing not so well now. Just see them, imagine them, feel them if you can. May you be safe. Be happy, be healthy, live with ease. May you be safe, be happy, healthy, live with ease.
And finally, we can do it for all beings, all creatures, near and far, known and unknown, visible and even microscopic, so far as we can see them. May all beings be safe and happy and healthy and live with ease. May all beings be safe, be happy, be healthy, and live with ease. And when you're ready, you can open your eyes. Today. I, th I thought that uh, I have a few things I'd like to say about loving kindness and about love in general, but it's perspective. But I thought since so much is going on and so much is on our minds, it might be nice just to hear from folks first, just to get a sense of where you are, whether it's about the practice or about the topic, but maybe we could begin about the practice and if there's any thoughts, comments, questions, obstacles that come up. Uh, I, I love the meditation. I, I, my, I do have, I'm a beginner in, mm -hmm. in terms of practicing. I've gone to retreats offered by something called the Namchak Foundation. Mm -hmm. And one of them was a retreat in Tonglen. Mm -hmm. and, um, and it is helping both to calm me during these, these tough days. And uh, because, you know, I think like a lot of people, I fear just going to the supermarket. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's also taking my mind off of myself and letting me think of others too. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, so it, uh, it, I'm finding it both beautiful and very, very helpful. Mm -hmm. And during tonight's meditation, um, my mind was wandering a little bit partially because I have a window open and I was hearing birds chirping outside, <laughs> which felt really nice, but I was able to come back to the meditation too. Yes. So um, I just want to thank you. Anyone else like to say some things? I, I find it uh, hard to, uh, to do a lot of uh, shamatha meditation these days because I feel so alone 24-7 being uh, isolated. And um, I, I guess I yearn for uh, activity with others. And so being alone in my head while I meditate or trying not to, uh, you know, be in my head when I meditate is sometimes challenging. It's a little more aloneness, but um, the uh, loving kindness meditation uh, helped tonight to, um, to get me out of that mind frame. So I appreciate that. 
uh, hi, Kevin. It's very good to see you. It's, uh, it's been far too long. So maybe you're not quite as alone in your apartment as, uh, as we all are. I think we're connected in some way. And I really appreciate the, um, the, the organizing this teaching and this particular teaching, Bill. It was very, um, I find it very empowering. And for me, I, I, I find the, the, the conscious focusing on our capacity to love each other and to be kind, to be one of the things that really helps get me through this difficult time. Both, it, to me, it both, um, it helps me to be a good mood, in a, in a good mood and share that mood more widely with people who may be struggling uh, more than I am. And I, I'm pretty much convinced that the, the worst toxin in the world is human mood. So this, uh, this practice, I think, really helps, uh, helps with that. But I think that for me also, I think the, the practice helps to really consolidate a foundation for loving kindness that I feel all around me, but it, um, where people are helping each other and celebrating out the window. I don't know about by you, but every evening at 7 p.m. at the stroke of seven, there's a, a raucous appreciation of caregivers. And, and that sort of spontaneous outpouring of compassion and love and solidarity, I think combined with a, a conscious focus on this, on loving kindness, are hopefully the things that we will carry with us once the pandemic is ended. And it'll be the, the anchor, hopefully, of the ways that we rebuild and reshape our economy to be more caring economies and more caring ways to do this. So I just really wanted to thank you, Bill, and thank you all for, for the practice together. And I, uh, I, I believe that it, it has a resonance that goes beyond the, uh, the caring and the happiness that I feel right now and the gratitude and i'm hoping that this is something that we can um we can carry forth so sorry to speak so long but that's um that's what came to my mind you know love is such a interesting thing right because it's kind of like air or water or terms like democracy or law you know it's so much is kind of packed into it so oftentimes we think we know what we're talking about with one another, and actually we don't. We, we may find, for example, that, that my experience of love has been really quite different than yours. And I think I'm understanding you, or you think I'm understanding you, and actually there's a gap there. And there's this difference and sort of, that we often don't know until there's a conflict. And then we can kind of see the differences and the way that becomes another expression of love that you can actually recognize the differences which we didn't actually know or maybe is we haven't even experienced in our own lives precisely that same way um you know it's something i, I noticed with uh with my husband that that i had a lot of assumptions coming from my family about what kind of love was and um expectations and there was things that were just completely without precedent in my life that were in his life that it took two or three years for me to figure out and how that kind of shaped how things could happen in our relationship how things could build or fall apart uh, the way things were said and not said um, 
And he did the same thing with me. I mean, he had to find out those things through experience about who I was and what my experience was and how it, shaped, it was shaped. So we think we're talking about the same thing, but often we don't. And our language actually is kind of surprisingly not so rich about this. You know, we're very good in English with the technical words. I think we're, you know, really, I don't think we're the most precise that people tell me, but we're certainly very precise. Um, and yet, like words like love, we have, don't have many terms for. So um, the Greeks had a lot of terms for it. They had agape for the love of friends. They had arrows for passionate love. They had uh, a term, I don't remember, I think it's a, it's a term that means playfulness, a kind of playful love that occurs. Um, the way that people can sort of flirt and enjoy each other and make fun and do things fun together, but not necessarily erotic, nothing to really be consummated, but it's, it's in the air somehow and appreciated, hopefully. Uh, and then there's the, the, the love of like a parent for a child, of a mentor for a mentee, a mentee for a mentor, all these different shapes and love and each one having its own sort of qualities. And we go as, as human beings from this kind of journey where when our, we're very, very, very young, um, we, we, we're not very good at separating ourselves out from other people. We may have some good perceptions as quite young children of others, but oftentimes we don't realize that what we think is not necessarily true. And that there is a system of pro projection that's going on in our experience, which we just think is fact. We don't have any way of really testing it. And so, so in a way we go from a journey of more selfishness to more of an experience of recognizing the differences in one another. And the love can move from being one that's more kind of driven by one's own preoccupations, interests, concerns, to one that's more kind of mutually created and mutually supported and mutually nurtured. And with an appreciation not only of what you have in common, but also to start to have a real appreciation of how we're actually different. And I think that's actually when things get really interesting um, in love, actually. Uh, when you come up against those differences and you recognize them and it's mutual. Um, another part of thing that, that I would like to say about love is that it's not only does it have all these different expressions and variations, which we don't always think about, is it also seems to be very much, we talk about in Buddhism about interdependence. Um, and I think it's really about how interrelatedness or relatedness is structured into pretty much everything we do. Um, so that if you think about something like your genes, when the human genome, it's been, uh, I'm not no expert on genetics, but 
what I understood when the genome was first being decoded um, was that there was something that the geneticists at that point were calling junk DNA, which I hope they've given another name. Um, and it's actually the DNA for things like plants and other animals that we carry in our genes, but is not, was not, at that time, they told us it wasn't being used. I don't know where they are with this, but to think that the genetic material of all these animals, of all of our ancestors, of all the ancestors we've forgotten, um, of plants are actually in our genes. And I don't think of it as junk. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it's doing. But just the principle of that, talk about the profound interrelatedness that's kind of written right into our, our foundation and our potential. Um, language. Grammar, I, you, he, they, we, they, it, subjects, objects, verbs, it's all relatedness. And even a word is trying to capture a class of things. Even though it's a symbol, we may mistake the symbol for the thing. We may get caught up in that. It still is an effort to communicate something with, with, with ourselves. Um, in development, nothing, there's no baby without a mother, period. There's no mother without a baby, period. <laughs> you know, uh, the, not at the beginning, you know, the, uh, the baby totally relies on the parent for touch, protection, warmth, some anticipation of its needs, reading its cries. Um, and without that, baby dies, you know. There's a, these wonderful, not really wonderful, but they're telling studies from the 1940s of looking at babies in, in orphanages in, in, uh, and how they died at 60, 70% of the, the babies, they weren't being touched. And they're between the diseases and probably the failing of their immune systems, they died. You know, without that touch, without that human connection. And mothers will tell you, mothers of children who have basic communication problems at birth, you know, it's very hard on them. They, they don't get the feedback, or if the child is colicky and there's a lot of crying, they need, they need feedback. They need feedback to know that they're being successful with the baby, that the baby is responding with a smile, with a coo, with a laugh. And then the mother needs some support, or the father needs some support, or the caregivers need some support in order to be able to do what they're doing because they're exhausting themselves, draining themselves, you know, in the process. So to do be successful at that, to have the patience and the sacrifice they need, they need a whole system of support. So these practices really say that, you know, we really cannot be happy without true love. And yet, what's true love? <laughs> what's true love? I mean, you know, your, your guesses are as good as mine. I mean, really. I, it's, you know, I know what the Buddha is said to have said about it. And I can share that with you. But really, if we look at our experience, you know, what does true love merely mean? It's actually a really interesting question to contemplate. And I think as you, if you like this practice and do it, you start to go deeper with it. You realize you, 
wishing compassion and loving kindness to all these people, then you suddenly realize the people you are enraged with or you have hatred towards or you, you harbor feelings from past damages and injuries. And, and suddenly it's like, oh, this love thing is like for the birds. <laughs> You know, I had one person I, I worked with on this, and he said, they do not deserve my love. <laughs> we'll never do this practice for them. And uh, I don't think I ever dissuaded him of that, actually, <laughs> truthfully. Um, but the, the practice, let's talk a little bit about what the Buddha said, because I think we need to, it's a very intimate thing. It's something more that I think one could do with, your own writing, someone that you really can confide in. So I'm not going to ask anyone to kind of, kind of bear their souls here. I don't think it's the right place for that. But, but let's talk about what the Buddha did say about it. Okay, and he, there was a time where he was he would teach to people not just Buddhists of that time, but also to uh, what they called Brahmins, say Hindus. And, and one uh, Brahmin, if you will, a Brahmin said to him, he said in a teaching, he said, I really would like to do a practice that will allow me when I die to be with Brahma. And he said, well, then you must practice the four, they call it Brahma Varas. And Varas means in a, like an abode, in a place where you abide, either metaphorically, mentally, or physically. And the four Brahma Viharas were loving-kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. Those were the four. And loving-kindness is really different than passion. If you think about passion, you know, oftentimes passion has a quality of, of um, grabbing, of uh, taking hold of, you know, of assuming into you or, you know, projecting into someone else or devouring or controlling, you know, one can go from passion to jealousy pretty quickly. Um, one can go from adoring a person to controlling them when, they, when they're frightening you or hurting you or you feel they're breaking what you think is the agreement or what you expect between them. Kind of goes quickly, goes. So loving kindness is more that gentle capacity of love. It's more like the appreciation. It's from the heart. It's tender. And it's very hard. I, I, I don't know anyone who really finds that they can be miserable while they're feeling loving kindness. It's kind of like why, why we mostly like our dogs, I guess. <laughs> they, they have loving kindness for us, we have loving kindness for them. It, it's fairly, it can be pretty straightforward. Um, and we have loving kindness for other folks and family, maybe a grandparent in particular, maybe sometimes a parent, maybe a sibling, a friend. So this loving kindness, compassion is said to be the wish that really to alleviate the other's suffering. So that if the person you love is really in pain, you just want them not to suffer. You know, you want to give them a couple of aspirin if you can. You want to talk with them. Right? Cook them something that will help their stomach when it's bad. You know, so they can have it, some warm tea. You want to 
ease their worry. You know, you want to do something practical if you can to help. You have a wish to, and then maybe perhaps you have the skill also to do it. It's compassion and sympathetic joy is really that said to be the joy that is so complete that it's devoid of any really misery or sorrow, which is, I guess for me, I, I imagine I never had a child, but I would imagine how I would feel if my child was graduating college and I was really happy for her that she was doing it and hadn't thought it would ever happen. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, you're so happy that your child's made it in that way or gotten their first job or, or uh, something of that nature. Um, or just had a success where they worked very hard for. You know, you're just happy for them. You don't, you're not jealous of their, of their this. And then there's equanimity. And equanimity means, uh, in Sanskrit, is called upeksha, which means actually balance. And balance, equanimity, I'd like to say a few things about it because it's really a way in which love is transcendent among people and living beings. You know, it's easy if you're really in love with someone and passionate about someone to actually to be as, a, as an island quite selfish <laughs> and sort of detached or, or indifferent to other people's suffering. You know, I had, knew one person who said I was a, I would, she, she said that her parents were so in love that she felt like she was an orphan. As an orphan. So equanimity, on the other hand, is that as we open to the other, we experience a kind of a, a uh, we don't get lost in things. Irritation arises, aggravation arises, fears arise. Sadness may arise, jealousy may arise, but we don't get lost in it. So like we were in the meditation, the instruction was when thoughts arise or feelings, let them come through you and go. If they're really strong ones, recognize it. Oh, that's what is happening now. And then perhaps you might be able to go back to the breath. So that's really equanimity is what we're practicing. And then with the instruction to let the breath come to you, you don't actually have to go out and grab onto the breath and search for it. You can just relax in the breath. The sensations come to you. And there's a sense with that, that as each thing arises, you're able to let go for the next thing. It's quite natural when you let things arise to be able to let go and open to the next experience. Breath breath, breath, or broader if our, our, we're meditating with an open mind, not on one thing, but the breath. So equanimity is really means balance. It means not getting lost in the feelings, but we have them all. And it can look, we can do things, we can have certain attitudes that look like equanimity, but are not. For example, disinterest, detachment that becomes aloofness is not equanimity. Equanimity actually is kind of 
has an element of loving kindness and it? it's gentle and it opens. You, you don't, you're not aloof and detached when you're gentle and open to the situation. Yeah. Um, so each of these are practiced in loving kindness meditation, metta, maitri meditation, um, the four measurables it's called. And each of them, one enriches the other. And alleviates, I think, some of the loneliness that I think Kevin was describing. Um, I think it um, allows slowly, 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 as we relax, we take in more and more into our experience of love. We tolerate some of the painful elements of difference, some of the fearful elements of difference, some of the disappointments of difference, some of the jealousies of difference. We just gently, 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 gradually over time tolerate more and become sort of richer, more present more encompassing. And these things make a huge difference in our lives. You know, I was thinking when I was preparing this talk about my grandmother, who was uh, born in 1898 in Hungary, came here to New York when she was two years old, and uh, became an actress and eventually was in real estate and became a stockbroker in the 1950s, 60s. She was quite a, she was, a, she was sort of an unexpected person. She swam, she kind of went to a different beat, but she really introduced me to meditation in some kind of a way. She sent, when I was 16 or 17, she sent me to a, paid for a little class that it was called Silver Mind Control, which was all about teaching you to relax, going, alpha levels in the brain and just essentially relaxation, biofeedback, an early form of it. And uh, a group, this was, we were out in, I lived out in New Jersey about, well, I guess it must have been 40 miles away. My grandmother lived on the Upper West Side. And uh, so a group there in New Jersey on a very hot August afternoon, probably right before or after Labor Day, we're going to a meditation at St. Luke's down in the village where there was a yogi named Hilda and she would get three or four hundred people and they'd sing and do I think they called satsang in yoga, in, in yoga practices and uh, and they were meditating and I we arrived about an hour early and I see this old woman on this sofa you know waiting for it to start it's my grandmother <laughs> so she kind of had this interest and sort of interest also in psychology and kind of brought me into it somehow through that, those experiences. And so probably I'm here today in New York City, I'm here. So we have all these ties, we have all these bonds and uh, we, it's a, this is a way of working with us and it's a practice. So that's what I'd like to say about these topics. And now I, any comments, thoughts, disagreements, changes. Now it's your turn. <laughs> I'd love to share um, something that I remember when I studied the four measurables um, mm -hmm. some time ago, and there were some images to go along with each measurable. 
And the image for love was of a bird feathering a nest. Mm -hmm. That's nice. And the image for compassion was to picture a mother standing on the shore, unable to rescue her drowning child. Mm -hmm. And the image for sympathetic joy um, was being, was, was looking at somebody succeeding in whatever endeavor and being happy for them and feeling that happiness and being happy for them. And then the image for equanimity was of a universal monarch or king or queen looking out over not the subjects, but the fellow people with an even loving kindness, impartial loving kindness. And I just always thought those images were really powerful and wonderful to bring to mind if, if the occasion arises in contemplating these immeasurable qualities. Thank, thank you, William. Yeah, I, I think it's something where we could almost invite ourselves to just to come up with our own images. Maybe we won't have it for all of them, maybe one or two, but it's something that touches us. That was from Patro Rinpoche from Words of My Perfect Teacher. Yes, thank you. I wonder, you know, if, just thinking about the quiet, I wonder if this is practice is hard or doesn't land for some folks or is something else that's really on your minds that you know, perhaps you'd like to, to share? Because I think it would be enriching if so. Hi. I, um, I think I had the same reaction. I forgot whether it was one of your friends who couldn't understand who had trouble with the practice because he he couldn't extend loving kindness to people who he really disdained. Right. right. I I remember when I first experienced that practice and engaged in it, that it was tough for me a little bit. And I think I've adjusted because I think I understand a little bit more about what the practice is all about. Um, and I think during tonight's practice, during tonight's meditation, what stopped me is when you said that we should extend loving kindness even to microscopic living things. And I was thinking, God, I'm not going to extend loving kindness to COVID-19. So, um, so it, 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 there, there are times that I'm, there are times that I'm stopped. And uh, I just want to tell William that I really love his cat. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. you know, the, the practice, I think all of our practices should be, we can think of it as our path as a gradient, not um, jumping into the deep end, you know. So the usual progression is that you begin for yourself now. And for many people, that's the easiest thing. And it actually nurtures you because you actually do have to be connected to some positive things about yourself to be able to love in any complete way. You know? um, but for some people, it's very hard if they have very harsh views of themselves or... Um, 
they they have reasons that they haven't things that they haven't forgiven themselves for that's really kind of made is really important in their day-to-day experience then they might find it much easier to do it for someone else so they're really good at giving it but it's very it is very hard for them to receive the loving kindness for themselves Uh, and then you would do it for other someone you love someone you like then you would extend it to someone who's neutral in the traditional practice to someone who's really annoying you and then finally to an adversary or an enemy and we may not get to the adversary or enemy in our lifetime or maybe we will but i think it in some ways it's not this isn't about running a race it's about just engaging in a heartfelt way to practice and then it's really useful and being honest with yourself so thank you for that clarification yeah yeah it's not pass or fail um again thank you bill the uh the teaching was really uh it really uh touched me and it there was so much to digest so i think for me that was part of the silence mm-hmm. um i think one of the things that really struck me is early on you you know you describe the um, the the process of love is sort of that process of discovery and learning you know from your your husband or your partner or whoever but that learning with each other um and understanding their experiences and how they love and how they come to love and i realize that as you know that the for me there's a, a the part of the challenge in um sort of opening myself lovingly to people who have maybe widely divergent views is the fact that um, maybe that they're not engaged. So there's not that opportunity to be in that reciprocal relationship. So that, that, that foundation of, of love as a relationship where two people are willing to explore that together. Mm-hmm. So maybe the reflection for me is, um, although I can uh, generate the, the, the loving kindness and the equanimity even for people who are not maybe so willing to engage, maybe part of the work for me is also to create the opportunities where people I maybe have not had the opportunity to explore love with, that I actually create the opportunities to have those sorts of exchanges, even if they are difficult, maybe they're fruitless or not. But to me, that's, uh, that's something that just occurred to me from what the way you do, you, uh, you, you shared. So thank you for that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a sign in a way that, I mean, we're working, most of us are in the room, whether we do the practice formally or not. I mean, this is a theme of something, life themes that we're, we work with, right? And so I think it's a sign that of the enriching path of yourself that you pick up, gee, this is a person who it's hard for me to do it with. You know, and, and then you kind of engage it. I have a, a dear friend who, Um, he texts me sometimes several times a day and it's very angry politically and uh, while I was giving you the meditation it came across the top of my thing and fortunately this one wasn't particularly angry once I was 
week or so ago, I was teaching meditation online. There were curses and there was all this stuff we were doing, <laughs> meditating and uh, about politics and all this stuff. And I have truthfully, the real, the, my real experience in terms of I've not no patience for it at all. <laughs> but, the, the, but what I try to do is I try to have patience that this is how he can connect and there's no going around it if I'm going to be in a relationship with him, that it actually requires that kind of uh, giving him space for that, even though I don't really pursue it. And, and sometimes it really plucks my almost last nerve, but not my last nerve. And so it's, I think it's a maybe, and then I found the next day I could text him and have a very nice exchange that wasn't at all angry. And so I think it was working with my patients, practices working with my patient to be less intolerant of people who really aggravate me sometimes and work with my intolerance of, of that kind of emotional expression. I guess, I mean, I. I'd be curious to hear other someone else's thought about it, but I, what I think about is balance with that. You know, um, part of the cycle of being is we do use up and we do get used up somehow. Um, you know, parents have beautiful children and <laughs> parents are beautiful and then the parents aren't so beautiful and the parents are like, <laughs> Maybe they're, they're, maybe they're in debt as they're getting older in order for their children to be, to be and maybe their kids are not appreciating them. They're just thinking, why don't I have more? And so on and so forth, you know. Um, there's some way in which that, that happens. And um, I guess there's some way of appreciation of those that sacrifice themselves for us. And but not necessarily expecting those we sacrifice ourselves to appreciate us. It doesn't necessarily come back. Um, it's, I think it's a kind of a, maybe it's part of compassion, that this is part of what it means to be a living, living being. You know. Is that tied into empathy? Yeah, compassion is very much tied into empathy. I don't, I don't know if this is helpful, and I don't know if this ties in. So if, if it's a little off track, let me know. But I'm, and just to get personal, i am in, been involved in a long distance relationship with, with someone who um, I, I'm blessed enough that she happens to be a therapist and she happens to be uh, very, very spiritual, much more so than I've ever been before. And so I'm learning a great deal from her. And we were watching a video of uh, two therapists, so Terry Real and Thomas Eubel, who are couples therapists together. And they seem to integrate a lot of things that I've learned from Buddhism and, and psychology. Um, 
And, and one of them is that when you think you hear a difference or criticism or something from a partner, um, what, what their advice is to think, okay, where's that criticism coming from? Where, what, is, what is my part? Feeling empathy for your partner and wondering where, where, where that's rooted in. Yes. So it's, uh, I don't know if that's helpful or not, or if it ties in or not, but I just want to throw it out there. I, I see some heads bobbing, and I think that what is in, connects directly to this is the fact that let's talk about arguments with people we love, right? Let's talk about differences and conflicts. Little ones, they, they kind of come in, if you're like me, they kind of come and go, they're like little blips, but then they're ones that are more abiding or ones that are more serious. And, um, and I think that this is where compassion comes in and empathy you were talking about earlier, Doug, which is that for me, what happens helps me most when I kind of, I, I, I tend to, you know, when Jane said you still about me being calm and, and, and peaceful, and I know I come across that way a lot, but I'm also, um, and, and I guess I have a sense of, I don't know if, what's the word for it, a bit like social kind of, I was, I was raised to be a gentleman, basically. I was like the last, I think the last, last ranks of that. And so it's kind of in, in me that you don't sort of make a big, you don't, you don't upset the cart socially if you can avoid it. So uh, that's, so when I, so what I, the truth is I'm actually can get quite angry <laughs> and I can be, get quite furious and, and it can be, uh, and if I blow my top, it's, it's, it can be surprising. Um, and what really helps me is that kind of over the years and decades really learned to control my temper more and more. What really has helped me is when I'm, there's things that really feel unfair or unjust or criticism that really catch me unexpected, unaware, is to come back when I'm ready and just think, well, why were they saying that? And when I, once I can say that, I, I, generally I first don't say a lot when I'm really angry because I know I'm going to regret what I have to say. I know myself, I know what I say, I know I'm going to regret it. And, and I know that it's, there's some things you can't take back, they're just destructive. So I do very quiet for a while. And then when I'm ready to talk, then before I do that, I actually think, well, what was he or she thinking? when that happened? What could have made them say or do that? And once I get to that point, I sort of go through a, uh, a process of looking at my experiences with them and what might have set them off or why they would think that or why what they said was true from their perspective. Once I can get to that point, then I actually am no longer in this place of being triggered of, of fury and so on. It's a conversation. And then it's, again, then it starts to get really interesting. So I think that that's a very practical way. Uh, much of this discussion, um, even uh, 
your beginning, Bill, of the talk about um, uh, the, the different um, definitions that we each have for love. People think of love as one thing and another person may think of love as something else. Mm -hmm. And um, the discussion that was just going on about perspectives and um, conflicts like you were discussing um, reminds me so much of um, some of the study I've been doing with um, Derek Collini mm -hmm. about um, you know the uh, Mahamudra tradition of um, selflessness and the uh, uh, the sense that there is no real um, uniform perspective that we each live in our own reality. And it's, um, it's our made up reality that, um, that we all bring to the table. Um, I think of things happening this way in the world and myself, my projection of what I think I am brings certain things to the table, but other people come at it from entirely different angles and perspectives. And so just keeping that in mind um, about, you know, uh, uh, love and friendship, realizing that we're all in our own worlds, really, and, and that no one sees things the same way. Yes. And, and that, that's very important to keep in mind because love is trying to uh you know make a dance out of two different realities that mm -hmm. two different people have right so anyhow just some thoughts yeah thank you thank you i, I lo love that image of it uh, being a dance out of these different realities and the way you describe how it we don't there isn't an actual one sort of true reality, but it's all being basically constructed in our minds with very, in very interesting ways, actually, ways that coordinate and sometimes don't coordinate, um, ways that are in sync and ways that are sometimes way out of sync. And I appreciate that a lot. Well, maybe we could just uh, um, end uh, the, the uh, I'll, maybe I'll just repeat the four measurables and then maybe we could just end with the bow. And uh, uh, and I think uh, I'll say you may you to sort of speak to the larger collective of you mm -hmm. of we. Uh, maybe I'll say we. Let's say we for the larger collective of us. Yeah. So may we all enjoy happiness and the root of happiness. May we be free of suffering and the root of suffering. May we not be separated from the great happiness devoid of suffering. And we, may we all abide in the great equanimity, free from passion, aggression, and prejudice. Mm -hmm.